to overcome, succeed in dealing with a problem or difficulty, defeat of an opponent to prevail, overpower or overwhelm of an emotion, adversity, a difficult or unpleasant situation, used in a sentence, resilience in the face of adversity. I want to break free. Welcome back, everybody, to episode number 33, 33, my favorite number, of the Overcoming Adversity podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Blake Cohen. And I'm Amanda Marino. Welcome back. And we are excited for our guest today, but we've had about two weeks off. I was thinking about recording an episode without you yesterday. Yesterday or last or week? Or last week. Last week when I was gone. I also just woke up about 25 minutes ago or something, it feels like. So um, welcome to the world, Blake. <laughs> No, it's exciting to be here and we've been like trying to be consistent. We're really excited to have Bonnie Matthews come on today. Um, Bonnie came into our life and has been a blessing and, and helped so many people with her journey. And we're, we're really excited to have you on here today, Bonnie. How are you doing? Thanks. And it's great to be here. Hi, Bon Bon. Hi, Blake. Bonnie is a, um, as always, as everybody knows, the podcast is sponsored by Next Level Recovery Associates. And Bonnie is one of our our trusted team members who we really value, who does some amazing, amazing family work. But as with a lot of people who end up in this line of work, she has her own story. And, and that's why, Bonnie, we're, we're excited to have you on here and to hear a little bit about you. Well, I'm excited to be here as well. So the podcast is called Overcoming Adversity. And you know, we like to give our guests the autonomy to decide what adversity that they want to discuss, and it ranges from everything. Uh, what What would you say when I when I ask you what major adversity have you overcome in your life? What's the first thing that comes to mind? First thing that comes to mind is my codependency. Oh wow! Okay, that's yeah. a good thing for a lot of people, and codependency comes out a lot of different ways. Um. So what, how did that start for you? And like, what was your experience like? Um, I grew up in an alcoholic family. Um, my, mo- my mother suffered from alcoholism. And I basically watched my father um, struggle with trying to love her back into health, which did not work. Mm. Oh, wow. And, and then I, I just, maybe I'm foreshadowing a little bit here, but then it sounds like maybe you developed that same, Absolutely. That same need to try to love her back to health. So you say your father tried to, to love her back to health. Um, what ended up happening and how did that torch get passed to you? The torch got passed to me um, very suddenly. Um, My father died at age 52, I was 21. And as I walked out of his hospital room um, the day he died, the last thing he said to me was, I love you very much and take care of your mother. And that stuck with me. I just, it, it was a statement that I just could not get rid of. And that statement actually came up yesterday. That's that's why it was so profound for you. Now I understand. 
Yes. That makes sense. You know, codependency is one of those, it, it's an addiction essentially, right? Is that how you would describe it? It's an addiction to a loved one or their behavior? Yes, absolutely. Um, and it was, it, it gives the person who's suffering with it a sense of control mm -hmm. as well as a sense of purpose. Absolutely. Um, I would tell myself that if I did a good job taking care of my mother, um, I was good. So I connected it to my own self-esteem. Mm, it gave you your self-worth and your value. Correct. So what does it show up like? I mean, what is, we deal with it a lot with, with work, but obviously a lot of the people who are listening or the person who's listening is, may not be familiar with this. And I do think that we all have some form of codependency in our lives. It's sort of like a spectrum, but, but how does, when you develop into severe codependency, what does that look like? Tell us a little bit about your story of how it showed up specifically, if you don't mind. Um, it, it showed up in a, in a lot of different ways. Um, I would, my mother was always my first priority. So there were many times that she would call me um, when she um, would, you know, need something. But it was always after she had a rather disastrous accident physically and I would have to leave work and then I would have to you know be in hospitals while they fixed her up and you know constantly going back and forth to the hospital to the point of complete exhaustion and it, and that you probably put her before yourself or before everything at that time correct absolutely number one priority was mom dropped everything, right? Yep. And what it like, how did that make things unmanageable for you? Um, after one of her deals, um, my sister who was not in a healthy way detached, but detached enough. And she was living in the same state that I was and came to the hospital to see my mother and to see me. And she said, Bonnie, you got to get away from this. It's going to kill you. Mm -hmm. Wow. That's powerful. Yeah. And it's the same conversation. We would have somebody who's using substances. You got to stop this. It's going to kill you. Absolutely. And we, I think families, it's, it may be more difficult actually to overcome codependency then it is a substance use disorder because you can remove the substance and and see how it betters your life. But sometimes you can't remove your loved one. So it's almost like a process addiction or something where you have to manage like a food addiction or a shopping where you still have to do these things, but you have to learn to, to manage that relationship. Yes. And I've always said the most difficult thing about codependency as compared to substance abuse is that your drug can talk and walk. And it's, 
it knocks on your door kind of thing. Absolutely. I mean, may literally knock on your door. Yeah. Exactly. And blow up your phone. Oh, yeah. It wasn't until oh, many, many, many years later that I've actually been able to turn off my phone when I didn't want to talk on it. When was the, when did it start to shift for you? Like, when did it become enough with your mom? And when did it start to like, you, you start to see this as an issue and like, what did that look like that process? Um, I'm going to go back to 1989. Um, I was working for a hospital in Syracuse in substance abuse. And I, they, I was chosen out of all the staff we had every level of care to go to a conference called the Northeast Conference on Addictions. And all the big names were there. And somebody told me to go listen to this specific speaker. And at the end of her uh, little speech, she said, one of these days, you adult children of alcoholics are going to realize you can't do this alone. And a month and a half later, I went to treatment. So you went to treatment. Where did you go to treatment and how did that process transpire from that message that you got at the meeting? <laughs> um, oddly enough, it was New Year's Eve when I made the decision. Um, I literally walked into a very toxic situation. And that evening I said, this is crazy. I got to go get some help because I started recognizing the stuff that I was doing. Um, and I went to treatment with the lady who did the conference. Oh, wow. Um, she, wow. Yeah. She had just, um, opened her own facility you first of all interestingly enough my sobriety date is new year's eve also that's when i, oh, okay. I, mean, I, I didn't necessarily decide that day but i was taken that day my sobriety date is february 6th okay I was in, yeah go ahead i'm sorry no so it took you a little bit so you made the decision on new year's eve and then you took some time to figure out the treatment piece um uh, three weeks later, I was in treatment. I was the third week of January. I went to treatment. Okay. Where did you go? Um, it was a place called MLZ Clinic, which were her initials. And it was in um, Roanoke, Alabama. Roanoke, Alabama. Uh, yeah, it was definitely Alabama. So just to ask one quick question to backtrack a little bit, what were, you said, you know, before entering treatment, there was certain behaviors that you noted, like, can you share, like, what were the things that you, that were like that alarming that you knew you needed to go get help for this? That the relationships that I was getting in, um, I was doing the same behaviors that I did with my mom. And, you know, there's an old, uh, thing that people say is that we become one parent and we look for the other in our relationships. 
And that was definitely what was going on with mine. Um, I wasn't at all involved with substance abusers, but I always found people who needed to be cared for. Okay, so you sought out to, to try to care for people. And rescue, right? right? Like rescue? It, it wasn't as much rescue. It was more of just making sure that that person was completely and totally happy, taken care of, all of that, to, to, to my detriment. Right. 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 Exactly. Okay. So then now you're in treatment for it. What does recovery specifically, like bring us through the details of what does recovery from codependency look like? What does that entail? And how do you, how do you maintain that recovery? Well, as in any recovery, um, you need your support system. And, you know, I have found incredible amount of support in um, ACA Al-Anon, ACA standing for, as you guys well know, adult children of alcoholics. Um, Recovery is about setting boundaries. It's about um, taking care of your your own needs, not putting other need other people's needs in front of yours, and daily working on those skills. I I, I think of recovery in general as managing relationships, right? So even whether with codependency or even with substances, you're managing a relationship with the substance, you're managing now a relationship with a person, managing your relationship and how you you partake in that relationship with the person, substance, the food, the whatever it may be. It's all about managing that relationship and altering the way that it presents itself. So correct. You over time, I'm sure had uh, it was bumpy in the beginning. I'd imagine, right? I mean, it's it's kind of hard to break those cycles um, and those interactions, especially when you're presented with new challenges from your your mother in this case, right? Um, oddly enough, um, my mother had been sober for four years when I went to treatment. Wow. Um, and our when I. When I finished treatment and the 14 years following that, before she passed, we had an amazing relationship. Um, She took care of herself and I had good boundaries with her. Um, She had good boundaries with me. Where I struggled, I'm sorry, were you guys going to say something? No, no, go. I want to hear where you struggled. Okay. Where I struggled was relationships again, but the biggest struggle was the relationship with myself. Absolutely. Yeah. The, the relationship, that's where it starts though. That's like probably the key thing of codependence is, is taking care of yourself, loving yourself, but you know, putting your needs first. Um, I would imagine. Right. Yeah, that's exactly what it was. And it was a struggle 
early on for me to wrap my head around nobody's going to take care of me except me. Yeah, that's a tough one. And when I got to that acceptance, everything fell into place. I am curious of what, like specifically, what does a good boundary look like? Like, is there a way you can give us, I hate to put you on the spot, but can you give us an example of what does a good boundary look like in, in codependency recovery? Um, I guess the, the biggest boundary that people and myself included struggle with is one word. No. Yeah. Yeah. And learning how to say no when you know that that person has stepped over the line in the sand instead of backing up and making another line. Mm -hmm. Does saying is saying no, something that's been hard for you most of your life. Yes. In regards to people that are close to me. Absolutely. Um, Professionally, not at all. I I, I don't know where that connection is or lack of connection, but in my work, I can say no in a minute. I relate to that so much, except the other way around where I've learned very good boundaries in my personal life. And I'm okay with saying no without even having any feeling behind it. I'm just being like, no, I'm okay. I'm not doing that. But professionally feeling obligated to say yes to everything. And it's, it's almost the, it's complete opposite of what you just said, but I completely understand and relate and also question where the hell does this come from and why, why can't I change that? And it's something I'm working on, but it's, it's a difficulty for me for sure. Yes. Well, then maybe we need to share points there, Blake. Yeah. Professionally codependent. Exactly. (laughs) I just want to be liked. Oh, for God's sake, please like me. Somebody. So you obviously are a professional in this field. Um, I'm curious now, how did you translated your personal experience into your, your uh, profession? And hmm. what you do now just in all of your life, you know, in your healing. Well, one of the things I forgot to mention was I made the decision, as I said, January 1st, that I was going to treatment. And I vividly remember sitting in group between January 1st and the day I left to go to treatment, looking at the group and thinking that that I was the biggest hypocrite in the world, that how could I possibly give these folks anything they needed when I was unhealed myself? And that was, that was mind blowing for me. Yeah, that's powerful. And it, it, there's no question. It made me a better therapist because what I incorporated into when, when I work with folks is humility. Oh yeah. And it, it's, it's huge. 
and it connects you to them. It does. Well, we had the other day the pleasure of uh, Amanda made a post or maybe our the next level team made a post about you the other day. And it was on my page. It yeah, was on, I shared um, it. It was, yeah, Amanda shared it. And there was just this flood of compliments that came uh, into the comment section about you and about all the people's lives that you've touched. And for me to see that, um, I hope you had the same feeling. It was so nice to know that you've turned your journey uh, into a success in guiding other people through the process of whether it's their own addiction recovery or codependency recovery or whatever it may be. The fact that you've touched so many lives really was beautiful for me to see and, and even increase the amount of respect that I had for you. Well, thank you, Blake. I appreciate that. Yeah, you're very, you, you help a lot of people. And that's awesome that you're able to do that today with, you know, the, the hardships that you've gone through. Um, I think I told you this, Amanda, that I get asked quite a bit um, why I do what I do for a living. And I always answer that I get paid to watch miracles. That's profound. That's beautiful. And if, as far as I'm concerned, the biggest miracle in my life was my mother getting sober and getting well. And I have always thought if she can do it, anybody can do it. And I never give up on somebody. I may step away or step aside for them to go through whatever they're going through. But I don't give up on people. You keep the hope. I do, always. I, I One thing I love about this podcast is that it's we get to hear people's stories over and over and over again of where they're turning their test into a testimony. And their, their adversities are overcome and then they use that story to be able to help other people and they integrate it into their lives, into every fiber of their being and go on a journey of being able to guide and hold hands of other people through the very same or very similar journey. And I don't know anything in life you can get more fulfillment out of uh, than helping other people using your own experiences. And it sounds like that's very true. Um, well, Bonnie, thank you so much for, for telling us your story and being so open and vulnerable with us. We do have one little segment that we like to surprise our guests with, because I'm assuming you've never listened to this podcast. Um, so you don't know this is coming, but we have something called the let it out segment. Dun, dun, dun. Bum, bum, bum. Bring let it on. The Let It Out segment gives everybody, all of our guests, including uh, the host as well, an opportunity to let it out. We all overcome major adversities in our lives and, and are here to tell the story, but we also experience small adversities on a regular and daily basis. And we want to give our guests the opportunity to express something that's bothering them today because a problem shared is a problem cut in half. So Bonnie, what's your Let It Out? <laughs> oh, you guys are hysterical. Um, we know. Yeah. 
Um, I'm in uh, I'm in a stage of my life where I will no longer be insignificant in anyone's view of me. Damn. That's a let it out, girl. Hey, who asked? I'll tell. Wow. I like it. All right, Manders? Well, mine is like definitely not that profound, but you know, I'm a mom of a bulldog. This is the first thing that came to my mind. And my let it out is I'm I'm like really annoyed at the people that breed them because I, <laughs> I adopted this sweet bulldog and he is a con- constantly at the vet and has so many health issues. And I think it's because they're poorly bred and whatever you said, they're like a made dog, you know? So I'm just, my let it out is to the bad breeders out there that breed a dog that has to have so many health issues and be so uncomfortable at five years old. Just to make us humans happy. What do you mean? Yeah, people breed these dogs just because uh, it makes, they look, or, yeah, how they look yeah. makes humans happy. Yeah, correct. It's not fair to the dog. Yeah, I mean, he, I found out yesterday he's literally allergic to everything. <laughs> like what do you do then that so, yeah i had a 220 pound dog that had the same thing a 220 pound dog <laughs> yeah he was in newfoundland whoa was that a breed of horse <laughs> um i had three of them as a matter of fact oh my god where do they sleep i hope not in your bed it's almost 700 pounds together well i had them at different times but um no, they usually slept anywhere where it was cold. Okay. So not in the bed. So like me. Correct. <laughs> where you sleep in the corner, like the dog and the tire? Yeah, wherever it's, <laughs> I can find a cold spot on the floor. During the day, I like to sleep wherever the sun's coming through the window. Jeez. Um, oh, um, I'm a cat during the day and a dog at night. <laughs> strange, strange person. Yeah. So what's your let it out, Cohen? Um, I guess it's just what's on my mind is... I found out this week that I might be getting a little bit of a, a uh, medical nose job. And what's on my mind though, the one thing that resonated, I, I have like something collapsed in my nasal cavity. That's why I can't breathe out of my right nostril. But one thing, and I didn't even tell you this, Amanda, that the doctor said is that my voice is going to change oh. after it. He's like, you, you oh, have a nasal. nasal, he's like, you have a nasal voice. Well, that we know. <laughs> yeah. Which anybody who listens to this or the one listener who <laughs> listens knows, um, I have a nasal voice and he's like, well, that's going to change now. It's nasal because you're, it's like, it's like you're holding your nose closed. So I'm interested to hear like this deep, sexy, very white voice. I'm going to have John B. <laughs> John B. Yeah. This, this sexy voice that's going to come out afterwards. Um, I, I want to hear what that's going to sound like. So it's sort of what's on my mind, but it, it is consuming a little bit and also can't fall asleep. Not just the voice thing of like, what's going to happen in surgery. So, and the tampons in your nose, the tampons, <laughs> apparently I have to wear like tampons in my nose for three days. And so it's, a, it's a few weeks away it hasn't even been scheduled yet. I got a couple of things before that, but, um, should be interesting. I wish they can remove half my nose so it's not as big, but you know, we'll, we'll do it in steps and um, we'll go from there. As long as I can be happy. Blake. Bonnie. I was in nursing school for three years and I actually saw that surgery. Yeah. And your voice is going to go up about 10 octaves. Go up? Oh, yeah. You mean like higher? You're going to 
yeah, you're going to sound like a 12 year old girl. <laughs> what? <laughs> Why would that happen? That's <laughs> just what happens. <laughs> If <laughs> you can see his face. Why would my voice, oh, no, so you're saying, hang on. You're saying my <laughs> voice is going to go up? Where I'm going to like, hi, everybody. I'm going to yeah, be Michael Jackson? Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> I'll make a, I'll make Blake. a of it. Yeah? I'm just kidding. Oh, God, you got me. <laughs> oh. I was wondering oh, why was you good. were in nursing school for five years. <laughs> well, I wouldn't doubt yeah. it. Bonnie's done, like, everything. I would not doubt that you were like a PhD on the side. Um, Don't tell anybody. Thank you so much for, for taking the time today to do this. And um, uh, Blake and I, uh, we own Next Level Recovery Associates who sponsor the podcast. Bonnie works with us and has been amazing. And you can find us on Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram um, under Next Level Recovery Associates or Amanda Marino and Blake Cohen. And please follow the podcast on all of your favorite podcast listening platforms. Give a five-star review only, please. And I hope you join us in about a month <laughs> when my voice hey, like this. No problem. I've been really trying, baby. <laughs> oh trying to hold back this feeling for so long. All right, we got to go, people. And if you feel have a great day. Lie you down. too. Bye, Blake. I oh. want to break free.